So we, we first met recently when I was covering the uh, Days of Rock exhibition at the Lucy Bell Gallery in St. Leonard's. Um, and your work, which is currently featured in the show, the Days of Rock exhibition, documents the Rock Against Racism movement of the late 70s and early 80s, of which you were heavily involved, both as a photographer and also as a key activist. Could you just give our listeners a bit of an insight into how you became involved in this, first of all, and were you aware of how important it would would later go on to be in the subsequent years that followed? I first got involved in 1976. I'd been living for a few years in Australia for four years and working as a photojournalist. Mm-hmm. And I came back to London and I was I must say I was appalled at the growth of the of an openly fascist party in the form of the National Front. Yeah. We put in these incredibly provocative and um, marches through the text town centres and um, met Red Thornbrook, who'd been one of the main initiators of Rock Against Racism and the man who wrote the original letter. Mm. And he was an incredibly enthusiastic and exciting human being and took no convincing to convince me to get involved in this um, this fantastic um, idea of Rock Against Racism, which was largely, the, the idea was that the the politics of rock against racism should come from the stage, not from a, a group of political activists giving yeah. a series of slogans. So the, the very act of putting on black and white bands on the same um, stage and then them jamming at the end of the, of the concert was in itself a fantastically political um, uh, gesture. Um, mm. And the message was going out from, from the stage constantly. But we had no idea really how important um, or how significant rock against racism was and how many people it touched. And it's actually interesting now, 40 years after it, that people are still saying, oh, that was one of the most exciting periods of my life. And this was um, a really, they cite particular events when they look at my photographs. And say, mm. oh, I was there, at that. that was just amazing. But we didn't, I don't think we really knew um, how significant because we were too close and we were too mm. involved and too, um, we, we were, on a charge of um, of this of pursuing this brilliant, and um, and it was more successful than we ever dreamed. For example, the um, the first carnival, which we did jointly with the Anti-Nazi League, which had been set up after the events in Lewisham when the um, National Front had tried to march through um, at the South London suburb of Lewisham and um, New Cross, and had been repelled by. Um, probably 10,000 anti-fascist um, and lo- mostly local people. Um, after that, the Anti-Nazi League was set up and they together, we, we went into a, a sort of partnership to put on this, this series of carnivals. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first of which, which was the um, the one which surprised all of us because we thought it would be a fairly... Uh, we were hoped, for hoped that we might get 20,000 people if we were really lucky. Mm-hmm. It was at least 100,000. And 100,000 wow, wow. marched all the way from Trafalgar Square to Gosh. the east end of London, seven miles away in Victoria Park. But it, it wasn't a march like we'd seen before. This was a, this was a carnival, a, a rocking, exciting sway of people going through London streets singing and listening to bands on the flatbed trucks like the Mekons from Leeds and the Piranhas from Brighton and the Misty and Roots from Southall and the Roots yeah. from Southall were all on the back of um, Laurie. So it was, a, it was a festival of, uh, of anti-racism which went on apparently for it, they, 
from the beginning of the march when it first left Trafalgar Square, it took seven hours for the whole procession to get into Victoria Park. So a lot of people at the end missed practically. I mean, they might have got Tom Robinson's last um, song and and the, and the jam session at the end, but that's about all some people got. Others um, obviously got there much more quickly. Wow! But it was um, we we didn't realize we didn't realize that. It, you know, we'd then go home and turn on the news, and the first item on news at ten was the carnival. It was it had mm. an impact, but it had an impact not just that day. An impact which has um, gone on for many, many years. And I hope that I mean one of the signifiers, if you like, is that the National Front had got in the previous years Greater London Council elections had got seventeen percent of the vote. Mm-hmm. And the election the day after the carnival, it was the GLC elections then. They got less than one percent. I'm not claiming that was simply to do with rock against racism, but rock against racism played its part. Yeah. Um, so no, I don't. I think thing was so exciting for all of us was it, it was so empowering. We felt we could change the world. We felt we could do whatever we wanted, mm. and we were in a privileged position in the sense that in any of the that went to art school like I did or university like some of us did they, we'd had grants we, we weren't sort of terrified of um, a, a £40,000 debt which we couldn't yeah. um, possibly work out how we were going to repay we lived in some of us like myself lived in squats I lived in a squat in Charing Cross Road in the centre of London we, we didn't feel that we had to be tied down by the norms of conventional society and so we were very um if, if like a little bit anarchic and a little mm. bit um, a bit wild, but it was it was it was a wild time, and we were dealing with two of the most fantastic uh, rebel musics, that is um, UK reggae and punk, coming together was explosive. Yeah, and and your um, in, you know, initially, how did you get involved as well in this this amazing movement? Yeah. Well, I, I got involved because of meeting Red and being impressed by his ideas and. Mm. Um, and um, Rock Against Racism was not a formal organisation in the sense mm. that, um, you know, you didn't, we did at one stage talk about having membership cards, but it never materialised. It really, whoever turned up to the meetings, they were Rock Against Racism. Mm. And there was a core of, uh, in, in the sort of London uh, part of Rock Against Racism, a core of maybe 15 or so, or 16 okay. regulars, but there was also a... a group of um, people who came for two or three meetings, got involved with a particular gig and then disappeared or helped work doing some design work or graphics on temporary hoarding and then disappeared again. And, but there was a core of us which um, which were there for most of the time, but it, we didn't have appointed um, roles. We weren't, um, we weren't, um, we didn't have a general secretary mm. or a, <laughs> we weren't organised like a trade union or a political party, very loose ad hoc yeah. committee. Yeah, that sounds that sounds great. And temporary hoarding, you mentioned that that was the uh, magazine, wasn't it, associated with the the Rock Against Racism movement? Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's right. It yeah. ran for fourteen issues. Yeah. And it really, it, again, it was it was a bit anarchic. We really, when we had enough money to, to print another issue from the sales of the previous one, we'd do another one. <laughs> um, but, we, but the 
great thing about temporary audience was it enabled us to to broaden the um, idea of what rock against racism could be about mm. and, and to put arguments about sexism, about homophobia, about um, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Ireland in particular is another um, and enabled us to broaden those arguments some very yeah. you know, some great writers like um, um, Lucy Toothpaste, who was really called Lucy Whitman, but she was listed to, and, um, and David Widgery, of course, who was, um, sadly is no longer with us, but he um, was a great writer, and people would contribute. Um, some I didn't even know who they were. For example, when we were doing the exhibition Rock Against Racism, which is still touring at the moment, mm. it's going to our Gallery Oldham next month. The person who wrote um, before, uh, the, one of the introductions to the, my book, Rock Against Racism, Paul Gilroy, it turned out we'd written one of the articles uh, under the pseudonym G-Roy. We all used pseudonyms <laughs> a lot, partly because it was part of the punk sort of um, idea of, of, of not being, of being anybody you wanted to be, yeah. but also partly because of safety reasons, because there was more than the odd threat from the National Front. Yeah, yeah, so I, I can imagine. I THP3 or um, Sid Tune sometimes. Um, we all had different pseudonyms which we um, we changed and used whenever we felt like. So if you look at the credits, you'll probably often find that people <laughs> are very hard to understand who they were. Andy Xerox, I think that was David Widgery. Um, Angel Fountain was Grizzly Pete. This was um, pre-internet, obviously, wasn't it? So I suppose things like the carnival, you know, live music events and the magazine, Temporary Hoarding, they, they helped kind of give that extra platform to, to getting your, yeah, your voice out there. The idea, to extend the idea. Billy Bragg told me a lovely story. He was doing a, a book, I think it's called, I can probably see it on my shelf from here, um, The Progressive Patriot. Mm. And when he was doing that book, he, he rang me up and he said that, do you have any photographs of um, gays against the Nazis at the carnival in Victoria Park? And I said, I don't know. Let's have a look through some negatives. So he came yeah. along, we looked through the negatives, and we couldn't actually find a picture of him, but we did find the banners, gays against the Nazis. And he told Amazing. the story, which he tells in that book, about how um, when Tom Robinson was on stage and was singing Sing If You're Glad To Be Gay, and all these guys around um, around. Billy Bragg, who was, I think, something 15 or 16 at the time, um, all started snogging each other. <laughs> and he went, what's going on here? What's this got to do with it, with, with race? But he said it was only on the tube on the way home that the penny dropped and went, well, yeah, they'd be out against all that as well, wouldn't they? <laughs> and so it, broadening rock against racism was always a, 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 um, a an ongoing um, concern, which we... we, we constantly tried to do we weren't like ramming ideas down people's throats but we were going look to understand this racism you've got to understand what um, where it comes from what's the stable that this hideous group of ideas yeah. lies in and, and and here's here it is and it, it includes all these other um phobias and uh, and hatreds yeah and so that was it was important to do that to to, to make that um those other links as well do you, do you think um, there are um any parallels because i can certainly see them but i'm just wondering if, if you can see any parallels between the rock against racism movement and the black lives matter movement of more recent times which obviously you know have been especially 
relevant, you know, more relevant than ever recently um, with the murder of George Floyd at the hands of the police in America. Do you see a parallel between the two movements? Yeah, I can actually. I think there's, mm. I think there's very many par- parallels. I, I um, made a little um, thing up a, um, a little while ago with RAR and BLF, BLM. Mm-hmm. And then below it, it said um, different times, same struggle. Yeah. And um, and it is very much, but it's much more difficult to organise at the moment because of COVID. Yeah. It's you know we're Absolutely. all like um, only partially able to really. I, I can't imagine how um, explosive Black Lives Matters would be if people could more easily go out on the mm. streets. And more easily, um, but it has. It also has a, 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 the other parallel, which I like very much about it. Is it's a spontaneous movement. It's not a mm. uh, an imposed movement with the leadership of, you know, from the Labour Party or the Socialist Workers Party, yeah. or, um, the Communist Party, or it, it's it's a spontaneous and um, original movement. And one of the things that I was delighted to notice on the photograph is the homemade banners that have been on all the demonstrations here yeah. and in almost every other country in the world and say none of those printed banners with the same repeated slogan over and over again but people have really and that reminds me so much of the sort of fanzines the diy kind of diy yeah, ethos, which yeah. Is, um, it is fantastic to see again yeah, and I, I think it's so important. Yeah, so important to see that, and and again, I guess it kind of shows um, what an, an impact you know artistic practice can have on you know wider socio political and cultural discourse and activism. I think would you agree that you know artistic yeah, yeah, practice is, is important I mean, part I of that. Um, it, I mean, Gordon Parks, the great American uh, photographer, always said that um, the camera was his weapon, and he called it my choice of weapons. Um, and, and I've I've always talked about the graphic argument, which is, um, and that is that I believe that you can. It's not a question of belief. It's clearly obvious that you can use visuals, graphics, and photography as a means of putting forward a point of view and, mm. and, and pursuing an argument visually. And I think that's certainly coming true in um, Black Lives Matters and that fantastic gesture of the sculpture in um, Yeah, in I love I love that, yeah. It's a great example of art actually um, being weaponised. Yeah, and it's so important, I think. It's part of the movement. And like you say, people yeah. being empowered and kind of, you know, taking things forward and... And demanding change, not asking for it. Demanding change, which you know, which which needs to happen. There's no doubt about it. It needs to happen. Um, much of your work centres around people. I've I've you know looked through your work. Um, yeah, it centres around people, and it could be iconic people, you know, members of the Clash, or it could just be everyday people. And I've also loved the way that your work captures sort of key blink and you'll miss moments. There's a real kind of immediacy to your work. What are you looking to convey um, when taking a photo and what's your favourite part of the photographic process overall if you have one it's interesting I I don't I I don't really know what my favourite part is but I think that what I'm always looking for is to try and um, get people to give to to forget about the camera but to give me um, something of themselves and to extract that from someone is very, very difficult, but it's, it's, it's possible. Sometimes, sometimes you take a photograph. I did, I did a series of photographs of people in the allotments um, for, for the Brighton Photo Biennale a few mm-hmm. years ago. 
And I photographed one guy who was a Romany um, allotment here. The first shot I took of him was just brilliant. And every other one was completely gone. I'd lost him completely. He was, he was, he was not, he was guarded and he was, um, he, he was refusing to let, to, to, let his guard down at all and that often happens the other way around sometimes you'll take photographs there's one which um a lot of people really like of mine called linda this this woman which i shot in hackney in a place uh -huh. which i used to call my studio because it was underneath the arches in corbridge just off corbridge crescent just off bethnal green road the, the light was beautiful under there and i could control it by depending on where i put someone in um how far under the bridge they went or how far out into the in, into the direct light, and I sh I must have shot ten or fifteen rolls of film of, of, that, of that woman before she <laughs> finally got fed up with me and relaxed, and suddenly we got the picture. You got the one. It's looking, yeah. you know, it, 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 being a photographer, I'm always saying this to people: is you have to learn uh, to look. Yeah. Not not just to um, to take the photo and. and you don't, not to take the photograph before you get there, but to actually look and go, whoa, what's going on here? And yeah. how can I, how can this talk to me? And how can I get this rapport between myself as the photographer, the camera, and the person I'm photographing? So many of my photographs, have, as you say, are mostly based on people. I'm really yeah. um, a people photographer and feeling very frustrated at the moment because I can't really photograph people. Of course, uh, because yeah, the lockdown. Yeah. Really picture I like to move in close on people and it's, it's quite frustrating to know but maybe I've got to rethink my aesthetic <laughs> um, because I've been doing a series of photographs of in, in a bus shelter in Bexhill on Sea which is oh, a very, that sounds interesting. Um, piece of architecture it's a horrible um, ugly building but it, it's painted white inside and it faces north so it's almost the classic artist north light studio oh. and uh, and it has a it has a beautiful quality to it, and I've just been photographing young people in there, oh, totally anonymously. They're not. Um, I don't ask them for their names or um, anything. It's about the the face and the uh, and the, that human interaction. But I've had to uh, postpone that for a little while. But I won't yeah, obviously, yeah. But yes, I, I love doing it. my photographs are of people. Another interesting example is if I'm. The Rock Against Racism years is that I went twice in 1979 to Northern Ireland mm. because one of the most difficult conversations at the remember this is at the height of the IRA bombing campaigns um, was the whole argument about Ireland and mm. um, and I wanted to enter that conversation but I didn't want to go and take photographs as so many very good photographers like Don McCullen and yeah I've seen some of those images yeah so we're taking up the troubles. I wanted to go and take portraits of ordinary people and the, and, and, and to address that conversation from a, a, a slightly different point of view. And so mm. I went twice and did lots of portraits of people in the streets. And, and it was interesting because when I photographed young people, they didn't really want to talk about the troubles. They wanted to talk about my Rock Against Racism badge oh, okay. and the, what they'd heard about Rock Against Racism in England. And that was the most common conversation I had with everyone I photographed, even older people. Sounds a bit more intimate, a bit more personal, yeah, your approach. Yeah, it is much more yeah. intimate and personal and people-based and about um, trying to understand the humanity. Really important element. Um, so I've got a couple of fun questions now for you. If you had to save one of your images from 
just you know complete destruction which would it be and why it's probably putting you on the spot a bit but thought I'd give it, it a go it's, it's really hard to say but I, yeah I, I think probably um it would probably it would probably be um the girl in fishnet tights on the stage at Westmonton Pavilion yes I've seen that one um, yeah because the reason that I like that so much is because it was a, it was the, the whole story around it was was so extraordinary. It was, we went. It was part of the, a, a tour which Rock Against Racism did called the Militant Entertainment Tour. Mm-hmm. Militant at that time was very much the sort of bogey word. If you were a militant, you were um, you were really bad news as far as the Daily Express and the Daily Mail were concerned. <laughs> so we had, we turned it on its head and. Um, used it of course and we had this tour where we went around the country to venues um all over the country and up in scotland and wales and so on um with three bands every night Mm. and one local band and the three bands then changed every third night and i think if i remember right that west runton was the third night in on the tour Mm -hmm. west runton is up in the very north of norfolk near in cromer and when we got there, we thought that no one was going to turn up because every other gig we'd done so far, there'd be a queue around the block of people waiting to get in. But at West yeah. Runton, there was absolutely nobody. And we, um, the bands arrived. It was Misty, the Gang of Four, and the Ruts. Mm-hmm. And um, they all did their sound check. And we all were well aware there was nobody outside, but nobody said anything. It was like that sort of fear that you have when you're 15 that nobody will turn up to your party when you're birthday <laughs> party. You know, and it's 10-2 and nobody's arrived. And it was exactly like that. But then suddenly these double-decker buses literally came round the, off on the seafront. Oh, it, brilliant. I, I, apparently it's always happened there. The bus drivers would bring people from Norwich and all outlying um, villages and towns yeah. and bring them to the West Runton Pavilion. They'd wait and sit in their um, double-decker buses till the gig was over and then take them all back again. And she was one of the people who came on that bus. But I saw her get on the stage, and it was it was just one of those moments where you fueled with adrenaline. You just find yeah. your way onto the stage because you knew you were going to get a chance, maybe, to get that shot. But you, it was only going to be there for seconds. You know, it's like spotting a, a rare bird looking out of your window in your garden. You, you know, by the time you've shouted to anyone, "Come and have a look at this bird," they've gone. Yeah. And it was um, it was a, one of those sort of moments. I had to work quickly, and again, I had all this equipment, heavy equipment. I got on the stage, got the shot, and a second later, I don't know who's, but the bouncers had thrown me off, and I'd landed in the middle of all <laughs> my cameras. In fact, the camera which I used, I can see from where I'm sat here. It's on my a plan chest, and it's still a dint from that. <laughs> and, but these are pre-digital times, and it was yeah. film, and I had one shot. Um, yeah, so flash, you've just got to get it, you've got to so get it, yeah. things that technically could go wrong. The flash could be too bright, the, the shutter speed could be too slow, mm-hmm. the um, exposure could be completely way out, your focus could have been out, you, you know, because you focus so quickly. Mm. And I remember after we, the gig was over and they'd all gone back in their double-decker buses, we drove back to London, which was a long drive. In fact, we mm. had van that I was driving, one of the Ravans ran out of petrol somewhere short oh, of no. Cambridge on the way. We had to wait for someone else. So I didn't get home till about seven in the morning. <laughs> but I went straight to the darkroom to process the film because I, I couldn't get that shot out of my head. Yeah. It had been with me for since, I don't know, nine o'clock the night before. And it was almost 
12 hours later and I was still thinking about it. I yeah. thought, have I got it? And, and I remember the sort of smoke, I used to smoke cigarettes in those days, <laughs> smoking, I don't know how many cigarettes, waiting for the film to process so I could have a look. Fortunately, I had got it. So it was, it's, it's a treasure to me that yeah. because of that, because there was only one chance and it worked and that's featured isn't it it's featured in the uh i saw it myself in the days of rock exhibition at the lucy bell that that image is actually featured there i think it's an amazing image it's so powerful and it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to get that shot um absolutely a a couple of people actually uh, three people in that photograph have contacted me in the years since and one in particular was quite amusing that um the New York Times did a review of mm-hmm. my exhibition and they, that was one of the shots they used and someone in New York saw it and said, I'm sure that the only black person in there, I'm sure that's mm-hmm. my sister. And they oh. contacted her and it turns out it was. She was a student in Norwich at the time and she's now the director of the um, National Museum of Barbados. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's absolutely amazing. And yeah. I met her, I gave her a print actually. Wow. Um, when she was over in London. I can't remember her other name, but she was very nice. Oh, that's that's lovely. It's such a it's such a good story behind the image. Um, and the other kind of fun random question that I had for you is: Is there a picture that you wish you'd taken but you didn't? You know, is there an image that you sort of you really wanted to capture? I mean, I know you said you captured that one; and it was really difficult to get it. But is there an image where you came really close and you, you know it's always bothered you that you never? For whatever reason, you never managed to capture it. I'm not sure there is, but I'm sure there is. I mean, mm. there are, one thing I could say about that is that uh, there, I really wish I'd taken a lot more pictures. Mm. Um, because, I, I mean, I love taking pictures, but one of the things were, I, I was always conscious of, I never had very much money, mm-hmm. uh, like most of us in, the, in those days, and film was expensive. And, and mm. unlike today, where you can just keep pressing on your phone and getting images flying into uh, onto your hard disk, you had to be really um, economical with the amount of film you used. I can imagine. Yeah. And so you you did miss images and you did miss things that you you didn't. I, I think there are people I wished I'd photographed and I'd love to have photographed and I'd love to have photographed Bob Marley and John Lennon. I think they're two people I would mm. really love to have photographed that I never did because I, I was a great fan of both of both those people at that time. Most yeah. time, but um, particularly at that time. Yeah. And, uh, so there, there are lots of people who I didn't photograph because I never even got the opportunity who I would love to have photographed. And um, so I think that's probably the easiest, best way I can think of answering. I can't think of a particular incident which I wished I'd I mean there are all things that I didn't go to which because I didn't have the money or I didn't have time or yeah. whatever I don't know which I, I wished I'd gone to I wished I'd gone to the Manchester Carnival for example which mm-hmm. I didn't um, and so I've got no picture of that I should have gone up to Glasgow to the Glasgow Carnival but I didn't mm-hmm. um, and um, I don't look on that period with great a, a great sort of list of regrets though mm. It's more the opposite. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I think, yeah, you've achieved so much, so I think you should be really proud of of everything, you know, your, your body of work um, yeah. as, as it is. I think it's it's absolutely outstanding body of work. And you've enjoyed, you know, a, a really highly esteemed career as a photographer 
over the years. Um, you said that you worked as a photojournalist in Australia. You've had your work widely exhibited. You've also got select prints in the um, Tate and the V&A Museum in London. Um, what do you think your most memorable moment career-wise has been? Um, Carol Tullock and, and, and Mark Seeley for um, encouraging me to put together the book Rock Against Racism, mm. which is um, I'm very proud of. Yeah, and is there anything else that you still, you know, want to to achieve creatively? Anything you have yeah, planned upcoming? So I, I, I really, I, I mean, I, I've said this many times to people. I still think I haven't taken my best work, and um, <laughs> I, I, I will always have that mentor in my um, in my locker. Is that I'm still always looking. I mean, nowadays I work with digital cameras, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I like I like digital cameras very much. I'm not a I'm not a, um, a, a, a I mean I like film too, but I I, I, did, I like the freedom of not having to um, have a dark room and um, and being able to see things on screen quite quickly and so on. But mm-hmm. I, I still I will continue to take photographs all of my life. I'm sure that, that, that that's without a doubt. Mm. Now lockdown restrictions are starting to ease and the creative community is opening up again, are you concerned about the possible long-term impact of the pandemic on the arts? And do you think, do you think um, just to add quickly, that some, some of these restrictions could actually lead to perhaps more innovation going forward? Because, you know, people, have, especially the arts community, they've had to kind of really work around everything of the last couple of months. Of course they will. The people, mm. that's, that's what's so fantastic is that people's creativity is irrepressible mm. and you know you look at um you look at the terrible wars that um not in this country but to, that, and which continued and you look at the look at the creativity look at someone like don mccullen and the mm. work he did yeah. in, in in vietnam or in biafra or um, you know in some of the most horrendous conditions yeah. you could even possibly imagine i can't imagine i've never been anywhere like that i must say and um, and yet the creativity is still there and the exciting yeah. work that comes out of it and um and i think that's the creativity is irrepressible but it's yeah. it has to but you have to fight for it as well it's absolutely not, um, it's not a natural given um it has to be um pursued yeah it's it's essential really i think to kind of you know humanity's existence it's, it's an essential part yeah. of of life being creative it's so and it can, can have so many purposes as well you know recreational or for for something more um like activism um as we've discussed i think one of the things that um we adopted we didn't create we didn't invent it but it was adopted from the surrealist movement which we used to use as a slogan in mm. um, rock against racism was all power to the imagination mm. and i love that i think that would always be one of my favourite um, sayings because I mm. think it's it's something which drove us in in those days, and I think it's something which still continues to drive most of us as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that, that's that's brilliant, and I think um, that's quite a nice note to to finish the interview on. Actually, I'd just like to say, obviously, you're currently some of your work is being exhibited in the Days of Rock exhibition alongside other photographers such as Andrew Caitlin and Terry Pasta amongst others um, and that's at the Lucy Bell Gallery in St Leonard's. Is there anything else that you would like to um, say before we conclude the interview or share with our listeners? I only to say that if, if you are 
in Manchester from the, uh, uh, as, as it looks at the moment the provisional date for the reopening of the Rock Against Races of the Big mm -hmm. Show is the 17th of August and that's at Gallery at Oldham mm -hmm. and, it run, and that'll run until the end of November Mm -hmm. And going forwards um, to 2021, I know a lot of people have put kind of, um, you know, plans aside, artists and things have had to put plans on hold for 2020, but is there anything coming up in 2021 that you've a, got in mind? There's a big exhibition which is coming up at the Tate Gallery, and I can't yeah. just change the title, which and it was um, After Empire, Britain and Photography, 1945 to 1979. Yeah. And I think they've got... I think there's 11 of my works in there which which and that looks like it's going to be a really exciting exhibition the dates are still not clarified because the date is um it's a tape written but it'll be um either the end of next year or the beginning of 2022 very exciting so yeah hopefully everything will be um a bit more back to normal now now everything's kind of lifted with the lockdown and yeah we can we can look forward to your exhibitions um in the future, as you say, and and the days of Rock One running at the moment at the Lucy Bell. Thank you so much for your time, Sid. It's been so no interesting Thank you for to talk to you. Um, I really appreciate you, you know, taking the time to talk to us. So thank you so much. Okay. Take care. Bye, -bye. Bye now. Bye.